I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Dr. Sandra T. Elliott, who goes by Elliott, and you'll learn about that in just a few minutes. Uh, she is the Chief Academic Officer at TouchMath. Elliot talks about uh, what dyscalculia is, what can be done, and why you should know more about it. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. And oh, by the way, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? That'd be so awesome. You know, send a few nice words and uh, uh, maybe five stars. Hmm, how about it? Thanks so much. You are amazing. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Uh, today I'm talking with Sandra T. Elliott, Ph.D., Chief Academic Officer at TouchMath. Uh, Dr. Elliott, who goes by Elliott, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, is a career educator who has spent over four decades working to enhance education for all students and improve schools and their systems around the globe. She has served as a special education teacher and five-time principal in Florida and Colorado, as well as a district-level administrator. She has held executive-level positions at for-profit education providers and found Foundations and was part of the Engage New York uh, Eureka Math team for several years. Dr. Elliot, remember she's called, she goes by Elliot, is also a member of the UNESCO-sponsored International Edu Summit that meets biennially to write education policy recommendations to be adopted by the United Nations. She's thrilled to be able to combine her focus on special education and math at Touch Math and Champion for Dyscalculia. Elliot, welcome and thanks for joining me and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. And I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be... Um on a podcast again. So it's like, thank you for inviting me, Steve, especially to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and my colleagues. Well, glad that you're here. And uh, let's start here first. I mean, could you talk a little bit about you as a special education teacher and maybe as a principal that might've influenced your focus today? I began my life as a, one of the first, uh, we called it profoundly and severely handicapped teachers back more than four decades ago. So and it's evolved. It's now pretty much called uh, Mod Severe. But I ran, I was a teacher in a center classroom. So I had nine wonderful students and four paraprofessionals who supported me. So it was very much one-on-one. We were teaching life skills. And most of the students in the school weren't even focused on academics. And then that evolved into being the principal of the center in, in Duval County. And um, moved on to Gen Ed, where I found out that it was normal to have children talk to you because at my previous school, very, very few of the children were verbal. But by moving into gen ed, I suddenly was exposed again to the academics and how to support general ed teachers with reading and math and social studies and science. And then the fact that the teaching strategies that I used as a SPED teacher, a lot of my gen ed peers didn't know about. And It's been interesting because research has now brought all of that that we special educators did decades ago as now being, oh, this is what's in the What Works Clearinghouse as being an effective teaching practice. So everybody gets to use it. So 
that I brought forward. And I think that has helped me a lot with where I am right now, because it's combining all of that instructional strategies research that was done and the mathematics that I picked up over time and with, you know, being with Eureka. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you. Now I got to ask a question. All right. Cause this is, okay. this is going to be funny because um, this is going to be strange, small world thing. Um, so I'm a, my undergraduate, I graduated from Jacksonville University mm-hmm. and I did my Very student familiar. teaching. I did my student teaching at Terry Parker high school. Oh my gosh. I was at Mount Hermon. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I was at Vene- you remember Venetia fishware? Um, don't know. Oh, elementary schools. Okay. Yeah, I was Venetia trying to think about it. By the Naval Air Center. Oh, out there, out there. Okay. Yes. Cool. Uh, fishware is down on the river. Uh, one of the very first of the Duval County schools. Nice. So, uh huh. Nice, nice, nice. That's some of that's. Oh, back to that is now. that is that is definitely. Boy, that is a connection I did not expect. We both came out of Duval County Public Schools. Isn't that funny? That's 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 cool. When you said that, I was like, "Whoa, wait a second!" Now I know some of this stuff there. I did my student teaching in around there, and then all that sort of good stuff. So cool, nice, nice small yeah. world. All right. So since I've kind of gone off the beaten path for just a second, you got to tell everybody about why Elliot. Okay. So um, when I, during my career, my very my varied career. One of the positions I held was um, literally building and activating charter schools all over the U.S. And there were a lot of other Sandras on the team. Uh, I was also in charge of when you're building a school, I was the only female. So my last name became my nickname. And it was one of those things where you sort of go, well, do I want people to call me that or Sandra? And then I showed up to a job site one day where my team was using the elevators with the various construction gentlemen, uh, the guys, and they were fighting over it. And I'm walking in and the construction guys are going, they were waiting for Elliot to show up so that they could give him a piece of their mind because they needed the elevators in order to finish doing the building. So I'm just standing there listening. And finally, they one of them turned around and said, and, and who are you? And I said, I'm Elliot and I write your checks. Is there a problem? Completely changed the conversation. And after that, it was like, you know, sometimes it's good to have a nickname that doesn't have a gender attached to it. So that's, and I, so I have stuck with it. It, it, for so long now, I'm not sure people know me as anything other than Elliot. That is awesome. Thanks for sharing. I, that's, that, I think that is so cool. So, all right. So Elliot, um, yeah, we're focused on dyscalculia. Um, could you start us by explaining what dyscalculia is and what we know about it? Dyscalculia is a neurodevelopmental disorder that impacts the neural connections in the brain that pull information, visual, spatial, um, tactile, auditory, into the front of the brain in order to work a math problem. So it basically is recognized because you're going to have problems with number sense, math facts, calculation, reasoning, all especially at the early stages. So when you're very, very young, and I'll, I'll be honest, what we know about it is actually very little. Research is just really starting to pick up. We're about 20 years behind what is known uh, about dyscalculia compared to dyslexia. So dyslexia has got a, a huge head start on us. What we do know is that it happens in the brain. It has to do with the neural connections. It is, uh, it is permanent. There is no cure for it, but there are many things that the researchers are saying can 
um, be put in place as an intervention and a support so that if you have this disorder, that when you're struggling with the math, you can, in fact, um, do mathematics akin to what a typically developing child can. So there's, it's not a reason to not be able to do math. It's just going to take you a longer amount of time, and you're going to need specific supports and strategies as you go forward as an adult. Gotcha. Thank you. I, all right. So let's talk briefly about, so what's the difference between dyslexia and dyscalculia? I'll make it very simple. Dyslexia is, is the reading uh, specific learning disorder. Dyscalculia is the math specific learning disorder. Gotcha. Now, gotcha. Gotcha. So, all right. So, so what are some of the potential long-term consequences of dyscalculia um, go, if it goes undetected? What we normally see in, and I'll start with um, the child and then what it evolves to because it's got academic and social ramifications along the entire path. As a child, it usually manifests quite early um, and it can mean that you cannot do the math facts. If you can't do your math facts, you can't do the next levels of mathematics because math is extremely hierarchical. Um, if I'm not doing my math facts with the rest of my, my the fellow students in my classroom, I begin to think that I'm stupid. Uh, I begin to think that I can't do math. I begin to avoid math. I don't even want to play games that involve math. So I end up developing a lot of what's called math anxiety. You know, I don't want to tackle it because I'm not successful. It can also manifest as behavior, pro behavior problems in school. I'm going to do everything I can so that I'm not put in front of everybody to answer a math question. So if I misbehave, the teacher is not going to call on me or send me out of the, the room. That's going to compound because I'm not doing the math. Now I've got state assessments to take. I've got further math to learn. So I never really catch up. So when I'm in high school and I'm having to take the classes that allow me entry into the careers that I want to be in, I'm not ready for them. And I may not even be able to get into a college or a community college that's going to find a way to um, allow me to have those math skills. So I'm shut out of certain careers. If I'm shut out of careers, that oftentimes means that uh, my job opportunities are not what they should be, which does not do any good for our economy. That's for sure, especially with the number of jobs that require math skills and engineering that are just going begging because we don't have enough people. But it also means if it's not caught, I become the type of adult who may have a problem. And I'm thinking of my colleague who found out that she had dyscalculia uh, as a full grown adult just a couple years ago. She couldn't balance her checkbook. She couldn't figure out a tip when she went to a restaurant. She was always late for meetings. So those kind of things make you question yourself as, you know, I'm a bright functioning adult, but yet this woman held a state level position in the state of Florida for math and special ed, but she had no idea that what she had was a neurodevelopmental disorder that could have improved. Wow. That so I gave you a lot there, but yeah. it's, um, it's kind of like reading. If, you know, dyslexia has shown the same thing. That's why we focus so much attention on it. Oh, that's, yeah, it's, it, it's amazing. And I totally understand why it would be good to catch it as a child mm -hmm. um, because there are so many things that, you know, it's, it's you know, quite common and, you know, you, you go have a talk with somebody or you're, you're going out with friends and stuff like this. And someone says, Hey, can you help me figure out this tip here? Um, and uh, you know, so it's quite common for someone to say, well, I don't do math very well. So, and what if it is, you know, like the, 
they've had dyscalculia and they don't realize it. And, uh, but that's. Well, it, it's really, it's almost, it's a shame. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I have started doing um, surveys everywhere I go to speak or present. I have a couple of questions because it sort of started from my colleagues when we started doing presentations on dyscalculia because of Randy. Um, I would stand there and ask people, do you know what dyslexia is? And 99 out of 100 people raise their hand and know. Do you know what dyscalculia is? Oftentimes I would get zero hands unless they'd heard me speak before. And then I'd go, okay, test for you guys. How many of you like to read? And as you can imagine, every hand goes up. You consider yourself good at reading. The hands stay up. How many of you love to do math? You're really good at it. You might only see two or three hands. And then then I'd go and ask, okay, think about your friends and family. How many of you have friends who would tell you that they do not like to read, they're not good at it, they don't have a reading brain? And I think one person typically will raise their hand and they'll go, you know, my brother has dyslexia, so for him it's difficult. If I ask that same question next about math, how many of you have friends who just, yeah, math is, no, no, don't, I'm going to avoid it, I don't do Sudoku, I don't do any of those things. Most of the hands go back up. And I tell them that they've made their, they've made my case. Why is it okay to say that, to not say I'm bad at reading, but it's okay to say that at math when there's no excuse for it. There is no such thing as a math brain. Everybody can do math. We know that, but it has become socially acceptable to not do it. So for the student who has dyscalculia or is in that 40th percentile and fading towards dyscalculia, they don't have the disorder, but they've missed things in their education. We've allowed that to go on, so we haven't paid any attention to math. It's okay to not be good at it. What do parents usually say? Yeah, I was bad at math in school too. So, I mean, it is just, it is Steve, it has just totally taken over my life. It's like, I was one of those adults who thought, yeah, I'm not particularly good at it, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now I've totally switched my thinking, and it's like, okay, time to go on a crusade towards the end of my career and go, it's, we need to be equal. We can't be a country that focuses on STEM careers and yet say that we've got job openings all over the place and that when we're not paying any attention to mathematics that we should. That's, that's so powerful to think about that. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, it, especially because it, it would be something that is easily overlooked, especially um, once it becomes something, you become an adult because, uh, it, because you're surrounded by people who may not have it, it's popular to say, I don't do math well. Yeah. Or it is. Yeah. And uh, it is. It, I had a, um, I'm at bet in March. I had a professor come up and say, I just heard you present. I need to ask you a question. He said, I, I teach, I'm a, um, uh, a, a teaching professional. That's what they call the professors who train people. He taught nurses. He said, I have a group of, nursing candidates who are getting ready to take their final exam, but they cannot do the math. They cannot understand how to convert a ratio when they're doing, you know, a, um, a prescription. And he says, and they have to be able to work the calculation in order to pass the test. What do I do for them? And I asked him the questions about, you know, were they doing these specific things late on time? Were they having trouble with just memorizing what is seven times six and things like that? And he said, yes. I said, well, there's a good chance that they have dyscalculia. 
And I would suggest you have them go be legally diagnosed so that they have legal protections. I said, but they have to do this by hand for their to pass their test and be a nurse. And he said, yes. I said, well, then they need to have a dispensation to use calculator. But I walked away from that simple question that this professor had asked me, realizing that there are adults who, if they have undiagnosed dyscalculia or just math difficulties, they get to the end of their dream and they can't pass the test because of something that we could have corrected much earlier on. Totally, totally changed my thought about some of what I'm doing. I can only imagine that's because uh, that would just really um, something that could have been corrected. Yes. And is not um, yes. because it's thought of, you know, as nothing um, except just, to, you know, maybe somebody's excuse or reasoning. So pow- this, mm-hmm. is, this is a powerful subject right here. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what you do now. I mean, uh, you're chief academic officer at TouchMath. Could you tell us more about TouchMath? Um, what's its purpose and what you do? So TouchMath, we are a 48-year-old research-based, evidence-proven math um, program primarily used with students who are sped but also with those that are just struggling with their math concepts Um, we focus on you know the basics pre-k through the eighth grade standards and all of the math that is required to be learned at that level we've got four real components that are really important in this program one is it's you know it's a solid curriculum completely up to date, you know, that was what last summer was about, was doing the the latest updates to the standards. We use a specialized group of manipulatives that help especially the younger student move from understanding what an object is, you know, three pencils, and knowing what threeness is, uh, the abstract so that they can learn the algorithms and move forward in the mathematics, you know, and we've got intervention tools and things like that. But At our heart, we are for the struggling math student, and not only do we believe that all students can do math, but because of all the efficacy research that's been done on us over 48 years, we absolutely know that they do. So, and as the chief academic officer at Touch Math, uh, my role is basically to stay on top of the research, to keep my eye on what's going on, to work with districts about what their needs are here, their descriptions of where teachers and students are struggling with mathematics. And then by looking at that research, you know, continue to evolve our solutions um, and get the word out about, you know, there is no excuse for saying I don't have a math brain. All of us can learn math. We just need to do it at different speeds and with different supports. So it's it's a great it's a great job. That's all I can say. That's really cool. Thanks. Uh, All right. So TouchMath just announced a new dyscalculia screener available to schools and parents. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah, and I get to tell you a funny story about why we why we ended up doing the screener, what took us down this path. I get to work with a lot of incredible educators. Uh, one of them is Randy LaRusso. She's part of the academic team. Randy is the individual I was talking about who found out just a few years ago that she has dyscalculia. So we, have, we talk because we do free workshops twice a month for everybody on math topics. Uh, and how to address them. We do it on you know, various of the disabilities and the disorders and what to do for mathematics. And we were having a conversation one day and she shared that she had found out formally with a diagnosis from a psychologist that she had dyscalculia and that by 
being with us as a trainer at Touch Math, she realized that she was actually filling in some of the gaps on her mathematics because she was using, you know, the touch numerals and she was realizing that she had never made the concepts um, connect and into, into the abstract. So we started doing the workshops on dyscalculia and realized that everybody is kind of going, what is that? They couldn't pronounce it, you know, dyscalculia, dyscalculia. Um, I mean, all sorts of interesting variations on the term. But in doing those workshops and finding out that people really didn't know, Steve, what it was, how to spot it, but they knew that kids were struggling more than just normally. And it wasn't due to the fact that they had an intellectual disability and it wasn't due to the fact that they are out of school too much. It triggered me last year with the team to start doing a deep dive into the research on it and realizing that it is just starting to really be studied, that neuroscientists are looking at fMRIs and comparing a typically developing child to somebody who actually has been diagnosed and watching the brain as it does mathematics, looking at the cognitive sciences, looking at the educational sciences, and realizing that most of the ways of finding it are done at a very late stage after the child has started taking the high stakes tests and has already labeled themselves as being incapable of doing math or stupid at it. And realizing that there was not an easy way for parents and teachers to try and spot these early foundations of mathematics that actually are what are examined and used for the diagnosis. So it drove us to develop a screener that we thought was easy to use it didn't have to be done by teachers. Teachers have a lot on their plates. They can certainly do it, but it's just as easily administered by a parent. Um, it's aimed at going where math really starts, which is like three years old. There are ways of you know asking the questions to find out this child is not where they should be and tying it to probably the most important um, documents that's out there, which is called the DSM-5-TR, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual from the American Psychiatric Association. And it is the, uh, the book, the definition that is used in order to give somebody a legal diagnosis of a disability, which gives them legal protections and educational protections and, and rights. But in doing that, we also realized that uh, we need the input from the parents. So we developed a a survey to go with it because the psychologist, the child study team are going to want all this data to determine if you've got it. And I think the one thing that became very apparent was there are some of those out there, but they're used in few and far between between because mainly it's used to give to a psychologist to continue with the diagnosis, but the adult that's actually supporting the child, there's not a lot told to them other than let's go diagnose the child. So being all former educators and former parents and grandparents, we go, there needs to be an action plan and we need to give these adults something to do if they decide to go after a diagnosis. And there's lots that they can do. So in some ways, we're mirroring the journey that dyslexia has taken, which is we all remember when reading came to the forefront and parents were told, remember the reading is fundamental campaign. It's like, read to your child, speak to your child. Same thing hasn't happened for math. So we built that into the dyscalculia tool. So you screen the child, you also do the survey. If the child shows the indicators or some or none, there's obviously, obviously a concern on the part of the adult. So let's do something. 
we tell them in the action plan, go talk to a professional. If you have a concern, if you're a teacher, go talk to the principal, go talk to the SPED folks. If you're a parent, go talk to your teacher. You don't think your child is where they should be for mathematics. And you're probably right. But while you're having that conversation, there are things that you can do. You don't need to wait, you know, three months, six months, a year for a diagnosis or maybe no diagnosis and your child fall behind and begin to to feel that they can't do math. Here are some simple things that anybody can do. It doesn't take a teacher to do them, but it's things like do counting songs with your child. Um, Ask them to go get three cookies. Um, Sort things. All the things that are the foundations of mathematics that if we don't master them, we can't do. We're going to have a great deal of difficulty doing any more math further on. So that in a long story is sort of what what this tool is for. And we've put it out there to benefit the public at no charge. It's kind of like, this is important. We need to be addressing math in this country and in the world. That's that's awesome. Especially making it available like that, because um, it would give you another tool to try and figure out if there's something going on. And and that's what uh, um, is so important there. And so you've really kind of gotten us to this point to talk about this, but I mean, Help me send a message here. I mean, why, why should teachers and parents learn more about touch math and dyscalculia? I think that the more we educate ourselves on mathematics, that has a benefit in that we see where it fits in the world of all of the knowledge that I have to have as a child to pursue a career. So the fact that there is a continuum of math difficulties dyscalculia being the most severe and that there are things that can be done to allow those children to do math just as well as, as everybody else. But it also covers that population that is in between doing just fine on math and the struggling student, the ones having math difficulties, the same things that work for dyscalculia, they'll end up looking at and going, but this works for all math because math is no different for a child who has special ed or, you know, dyscalculia than it is for a child who is very, very bright at it. They simply do it at different speeds and need different supports in order to move through because math is a hierarchy. It is a brutal hierarchy. You have to master the, the beginning foundations and everything builds up on it. So the more you educate yourself, the better you can support a child, both um, social emotionally as well as academically so that they can grow into the nurses and the doctors that they want to be. They can be the engineers that work for Apple. They can be, they can be the teachers that work with the next generation of students because they like math and they're not scared to teach it in the classroom. That's awesome. That is, you know, it too often. Uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting because one of the things you made a comment about was that um, a lot of times. Uh, Whereas with reading, parents become concerned about reading and so forth, but maybe not math. And sometimes, and what I start wondering about is if that's that fear of math that the parents have anyway, that where they can't help their child or something. I mean, it just you're talking to a history major who is a history teacher, and and uh, um, my sons who are both engineers when they were in school would I'd say, hey, well, let me help you with your math. They go, yeah, right, Dad, you're your history teacher. You know, I'd say, come on, let me help your math. I can help you with that. Yeah, whatever. And my point is, though, is that sometimes where I was trying to help them, (laughs) I I do know friends and and, uh, 
other parents who have uh, um, kind of avoid it because it is they're getting into math beyond what they may have done or maybe a little afraid they'd send them the wrong way or something like that. So that could also help kind of perpetrate it for a, lo- a little bit longer as well, that it doesn't become as obvious. Well, we absolutely have a belief, definitely in the U.S., and you know, I even tested this in Japan when I was there a couple months ago and asked those questions that I shared early. There is a definite belief that you have a math brain. Reading, I can learn. Reading can be taught. Math, you either can do it or you can't do it. And it is such a, it's a myth and it's a false one. And, and, you know, this, you know, you having me on the podcast is going to help hopefully address some of it. Teachers, one of the things I was talking with one of the regions where I'm going to be a keynote speaker is she wants me to reassure these baby teachers who are coming in. These are the incoming teachers for the, the Dallas area that they shouldn't be afraid of math because if they avoid it, they're going to pass that on to the students they're also not going to realize that they absolutely can teach it. They've got good curriculum materials. Uh, the districts make sure of that. There are there's research starting to come out. What we're doing at Touch Math, there are things that they can do. Math can be taught just as well, and actually it's a lot more fun sometimes than reading because you get to play with manipulatives. Um, but we've got to address it. Steve, I mean, it is, you know, you can tell this, this is, it's critical for our economy and it's a, it's critical for generations who have gone, well, I can't be a doctor because I can't do math. Wrong. Totally wrong. So thank goodness your sons hopefully are going, dad, you can do math. Just not with us yet. You're not at that level. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much, yeah, it's a done deal now. That's, you know, they they don't want my helmet. (laughs) And especially now it's like, it's like, yeah. Uh No, because grandkids, you someday there we you go. have grandkids, yeah, grandnephews and nieces. You got to be able to to give the the parents a break and help with the math. So it's like you can do it. There we go. I got another chance coming. All right, that's good. Yes. I like that I like encouragement. Thank you. Uh, all right, so so Elliot, if you had a chance to be the closing keynote of a conference, and you do this stuff um, for, but this one's for superintendents, and you had a chance to tell them about touch math and dyscalculia. What would you want them to remember most as they left the con- conference and they went on back to their school systems? That's a good question. I'm imagining myself, you know, in in front of them, and you were saying superintendents, but I'm I'm going to use these incoming teachers, and I think it would translate well to the superintendents too. First message would be: I want them to walk away realizing that. Math is equivalent to reading. It is just as important a subject. It can't be, and it's, there is, second, there is not a math brain that it can be taught. We just need to put more focus on it. Um, And it is extremely addressable. And the earlier they address it, and this would be near and dear to a superintendent's heart, it costs less. It is, we all know, and you're, you're, you're smiling. Yes. <laughs> it, it is much less expensive to do an intervention with a kindergarten, first or second grader from a purely financial standpoint than it is to try to do it with a sixth grader, much less a high schooler. We know, I want them to definitely walk away with knowing that there is so much research that shows that if you screen and identify difficulties, dyscalculia or or just difficulties early on there are interventions that will allow these children 
to do much better at math, oftentimes equivalent to the child who has no difficulties and near and dear to a superintendent's heart, not just the money, but are the, the test scores, the proof that the staff, all the policies and procedures they put in place, where they've put the strategic plan, they've got the majority of the kids doing well on the accountability measures, the state assessments that show that these children are moving through and going to exit high school ready for the next phase of their adult lives. Plus just the personal satisfaction that they would have of knowing they're the ones that brought the test scores up. That's so awesome. part of that's tongue in cheek that I'm doing, but I'm going, I'm thinking of all of my friends who are superintendents and going, yes, test scores are important, but they also think of it for the children and knowing that they had a lot of the kids doing what they wanted to do and parents who are happy and teachers who are happy. That's awesome. I, you know, I specifically mentioned superintendents because in my work with, uh, in what I do, um, I work with superintendents all the time and I have learned um, that, uh, you know, the, there's a huge role they take in, in being able to direct that system to make sure that they're addressing something. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of that. And, and, uh, and that's why I was curious what you might have to say to, to, to that, that group. Well, you know, it's interesting. You asked me about touch math specifically because we're 48 years old. Um, we are used and recognized in so many districts, usually in the SPED classrooms, but we're one of those tools that has got, I mean, just, just from what I have bothered to track, um, I've got the past 20 years worth of efficacy studies that were done by universities on us. So every year I get a couple of calls from universities going, I've got some grad students that would like to use touch math in a research study around, you know, what works with this population, which instructional strategies, you know, your, your manipulatives and everything. And all of them that I've collected, you know, come back with effective, effective, statistically significant, you know, practically significant. And then all I have to do is talk with the districts and they all go, oh, yeah, the teachers love touch math. We want to get it with this population also. So I think reinforcing for superintendents that there, there are solutions out there. Touch math is one. Um, and it is a case of not only does it work in SPED, but because it's math, it works across all populations for when a student is struggling, whether it's temporary or permanent, you know, we make sure that it's used appropriately and with fidelity. Excellent. Love it. Uh, uh, Elliot, if, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and or learn more, where would you send them? I'd send them to our website. We've got lots of re free resources there and lots of information on students who struggle. We've got uh, videos, work workshops. We've got white papers and everything, but www.touchmath.com. Excellent. And I'll have that information in the show notes so it's easy for them to find it. And uh, I got two last questions that I like to ask my guests. And the first one okay. um, goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Knowing that I'm making a difference, hearing somebody say, thank you, it worked for this child. That's really all it takes. Besides, what else is there? I don't play golf. So it's <laughs> like, and I love, I mean, I love the research site. So yeah, I, I don't even think about the quitting because it's for the kids and the teachers, you know, they're happy, and that's all that really counts. It's a big motivator. Love it. Awesome. And last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given a chance to say thank you? 
okay, it's not going to be a teacher. It's going to be a superintendent. Ah. Yeah. So actually it's two of them. The two that I was, Herb Sang out of Jacksonville, Florida, Duval County. Remember that when he needed a principal for Mount Hermon, I was just a teacher, but I was finishing up my principal certification. He said, do you want to be the, the principal of the school? We need one because there had not been one at Mount Hermon. Nobody wanted the center school, I guess you could say back in those days. And he proceeded to tell me, it's yours, but if you mess up, I'll fire you. Nice. <laughs> yes. But that motivated me to basically in my head go, just watch me. There's no way that I'm going to be, uh-uh, you just gave me a challenge and I ain't backing down. And then when I left that district and moved to Colorado Springs, I got to work for another incredible superintendent, Ken Burnley. Um, both of these gentlemen are deceased now, so it's okay for me to just drop their names. But when charter schools came around, um, he saw early what was going to go on. So he wanted one of the first charters. So he gave me the opportunity. You know, I had to interview for it and get it. But I had the opportunity to be one of the very first charter school principals. So still, this still a public school, just not a traditional one. But I had the opportunity to provide an education for students that I thought only private schools could have. And it opened up a completely different world for me, Steve, because I wasn't, I'd be a superintendent now and probably retired if I had not done the charter school world. Instead, I got to work at Eureka Math. I got to work at Bright Bites. I'm at Touch Math where you know, I'm combining my SPED background and my math background and getting to do something like the dyscalculia screener and have conversations with people like you and be able to convert you to the fact that math is just as important as reading, that we can do something about it with early intervention and screening. And guess what? We've been doing this at Touch Math for 48 years. So we are part of the solution, but we want everybody else to jump on board. How's that for being, those two men made, gave me those opportunities and they really are who inspired me. It was kind of like, fine, sink or swim on your own. And it's like, okay, I'm swimming. That's awesome. I can't thank you enough for sharing those stories. That's, that's cool stuff. Hey, Elliot, thank you so much for sharing Touch Math and talking about um, dyscalculia with us. Uh, this has been an eye-opening discussion. And what an awesome focus you and Touch Math have. I mean, keep keep uh, ringing those bells and letting us, letting us know more and uh, what you find out. Uh, wishing the best in all you do. Well, thank you so very much. And thank you for the opportunity. It's like, and... We're out there, you know, people need to, we'll be, we'll be, we will be advocating and pushing awareness and the fact that there are not just us, but a lot of solutions, but we need to be doing something as, as teachers and educators. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. 
Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.